Difference makers all face the same question. How can we initiate, drive and sustain change in any of its forms, whether it be social change, behaviour change, policy change or, at its most challenging, system change? Massive Small Stories presents lessons from all over the world, amplifying how amazing people have done amazing things throughout their careers. It celebrates those who have overcome all odds by pursuing their purpose in life and have influenced change for all of us. These are our massive small agents of change. Welcome to the Massive Small Stories. I'm here today with uh, my co-host, Liam Black. Good morning. Hi, Liam. And uh, we've got a very special guest today. We've got a great guest today. So um, when we were thinking about who we could get in to get the Massive Small conversations going, uh, Maff Potts was the first guy who came to my mind. Um, he's the radical tea drinker, um, and he has done many things in his life in the field of regeneration, homelessness, and um, social change. And I think that the sort of arc of his career really gets to what we want to get to on this podcast about how relentless incrementalism, uh, small change with massive ambition. And so, Maf, I'm absolutely delighted uh, that you could be here. Um, the lovely music uh, that we uh, introed us to this podcast has been done by Maf, because not only is he a great um, radical change maker and tea drinker, he's also an extraordinary jazz musician. And we're going to talk a little bit too about the connection between his social change and his uh, brilliant jazz piano skills and ability to bring great talent together. So, hello, Maf. Hi, hi. Thanks very much for using my music. It's a really massive honour. I'm chuffed. Yeah, it, it, it was. Um, it was great to be able to ask you to do it and enable you to get into the studio to actually record it. Just tell us a bit about what did that feel like getting in there? Oh, it was a big thrill. Well, every musician wants to spend a. It's kind of like heaven to spend time in a recording studio with your mates who are all great musicians in a studio with a beautiful piano I had a concert grand yamaha piano beautiful uh, fender Rhodes, hammond organ everything available uh, you know and the studio engineer was wonderful and you just get to record your own music with your friends i mean it is the best way to spend time and just give us a little bit on the song itself which when we first heard it um we thought ah, bang, that is the that's that's our theme tune well i sit at my little piano my grandmother's piano which uh, I used to play as a child, which is in my house, a little challenge upright. Uh, and I write these little ditties, basically, um, to amuse myself. And uh, it was actually written because my local little town has a, a free festival called Bunkfest every year, uh, where people descend on our town and we have just this wonderful free festival. And this year they asked me to play on the main stage, which is kind of a big honour because it's, re it's, re it's really quite big now and thousands of people there. And I just wanted to write a tune for my hometown, kind of as a thank you for having me on the main stage. And I and I thought about the years we weren't allowed to do it because of the pandemic. And I thought about I'll be on the stage, I'll be looking out, and I'll be seeing my kids' teacher and my kids' you know scout leader and my neighbours and everything. And I just thought about that. And uh, so I called it "When the Sun Comes Out" because it's like, look, we're all together. We all get to, yeah, be together again. And 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 thank you to my community for kind of looking out for me. And, get me through it so I that, that was what was behind the song that's a lovely piece of work and we're delighted that you're allowing us to use it thank you there's a strong correlation between jazz and what we call massive small which is this idea of 
small beginnings that get structured and, and, and evolve and become, you know, symphonies over time. That's what we like to think of when we talk about Master Small. Tell us, take us to your thinking on jazz and, and how you got to where you are, you are today in, in, your, in your jazz uh, career. <laughs> oh, well, it all, all comes from my dad. So, I mean, I grew up, really did grow up uh, sitting on the end of a stage with my dad's Dixieland trad jazz band playing in some garden of some pub. And I'd be drinking Fanta out of a little bottle with a straw. Packet of crisps? A uh, packet of um, Tudor crisps they used to make back then, yeah. Uh, and uh, I'd be sat in my shorts, and then Dad would ask me to, to get the drinks for the band, and I used to have to carry a tray of six pints and a whiskey chaser, which my dad always had, through a sea of legs, because I was small, pop it on the stage, and I had to get it on the stage and leave before Dad noticed me, because otherwise he'd announce over the microphone, my number three son, uh, you know, and then everyone would have to applaud me for, you know, and I used to find it very embarrassing. But that was my life, was every weekend I was in a pub somewhere playing, well, with my dad playing jazz. And uh, and then I'd go home and my mum would dance around the kitchen to Ella Fitzgerald uh, and teach me how to jive. And so it was completely in my house, Count Basie, Duke Ellington, that was what I grew up with. And um, my dad was also a bit of a dude. He... Um, he worked in textiles, but his love was music, and he, he brought Oscar Peterson, who's the great oh, jazz yeah. piano player, to Carlisle City Hall in 1969. Wow. <laughs> and he lost a ton of money on it, but it became this sort of folklore story. And so Oscar is my kind of emergency, you know, if, in, when I'm really having a bad day, is, you know, break glass, listen to, in case of emergency, but listen to Oscar Peterson, that gets me through the day. So music's always been dad, life, you know, but, but but playing it as well. I mean, I I get very sad when people kind of make fun of jazz as this sort of elitist um, mm. polo neck jumper thing. Because for me, it's jazz. just exactly. Jazz. I know. For me, it's joy and expression. I don't know what's going to happen every time we play. I mean, it's different every single time. Why? Because it's improvised, right? So we play the tune, and then it's all bets are off, and you don't know what's going to happen because you're playing with five guys, and they're all doing the same. So you're all yeah. bouncing off each other. So it's like this mad chaotic. Thing that you don't know where you're going to end up and it's always on the verge of collapse now if that isn't the most exciting thing to do your evening i don't know well what that's it. actually where creativity sits it sits on that edge edge of chaos and order yeah and the problem is that we over order oh, we yeah. create con, you know conforming order in everything we do and as a result we kill creativity oh i so agree and, so, and, and also we don't yeah. stay we don't stay in chaos for too long you know we, we rapidly move towards some form of order but uh, it's, it's quite interesting. When we talk about massive small, making massive small changes, the challenge for us is how do we change the thinking, which is let's write a big policy, let's determine what an outcome, let's put the metrics in to measure that outcome, and let's put that in, and let's command and control it at all costs. And, 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 and in our world, you can't yeah. change it. It's difficult. You need parliamentary acts to change some of these things. No, that's that's. I knew you two would count. Yeah, <laughs> I knew you two would count. <laughs> I just want to pick up on your point about that order thing, though. And I'd never ever thought it was linked to my love of jazz, but I think um, one of the big, big guiding principles of what I'm doing now is is to not to not to organize too much. Yeah. Because when when humans organize, they have to systemize. They can't resist it. And when you systemize, you dehumanize. And then you're lost. Well, the problem is we trained in reductionist thinking. We trained in that way. And it's just, unfortunately, from the day we get to school, we get our creativity kicked out of us. I mean, that's really what, what happens. And we're taught to think and let's synthesize. Let's take something apart. Let's you know, analyze it. Let's get a theory. Let's then synthesize it. And let's come up with something. And it doesn't work in complex adaptive systems. And music 
like business and like cities and like urban life and like communities, are complex adaptive systems. You can't apply that kind of science to them. No. It's almost impossible to do that. And, and why the obsession with neatness and efficiency? Why is that always best? It's one of the, it's one of the metrics that, uh, that planners use all the time. Is, and I often, I, I love, you're probably the first person I've heard use the word neatness. Uh, in some time, because I can say this, the, the planning system is obsessed with neatness, is obsessed with the fact that That's right. people must conform. Yeah. Yet creativity comes from non-conforming. And actually, you don't need to worry about it because humans, by their very nature, herd. Yeah. They, they do conform. They we're conform. social species. We're social species and we develop normative ways of doing things. Yeah. And we rely on those outliers to, to bring innovation to the system. Well, it's not just creativity that comes, it's community. So... Uh, You'll therefore know, um, I'm sorry, I apologize, it's the only planning book I've read in my life. Yeah. Uh, not that people read a lot of books by planners, but I'm It's only saying, he that reads all the books. Is it? That's planning. what all yes, these books are. Okay. They're none. <laughs> well, uh, okay. I'm, I'm going to get a name wrong and everything, and you're going to be appalled by me, but is it Jane Jacobs? The oh, Jane Jacobs, Life, and death, and, the great, Life and death in the Great American Cities. Yeah. 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 So um, there's a fantastic bit in that book where she goes to a part of Boston uh, I can't remember the name of it now. Is it North End? I'm not sure. But she goes there and um, she phones a planning friend of hers uh, from the streets. And he says, oh, yeah, God, it's hell down there, those poor people, you know. I mean, it's just like, you know, we're going to build some decent housing for them. And she said, what are you talking about? You know, these so-called slums, they were brimming with life. Yeah. Everyone had repaired, because the landlords never gave a damn, the, the neighbours had repaired each other's houses, which had built community. Uh, kids were dancing outside the uh, the fronts of the houses. The music was pouring out. There was life there. Yeah. And what this uh, friend of hers wanted to do was straighten the streets, straighten the buildings, yeah. uh, give them more amenities, and, and basically ruin the community. Whereas the community had taken ownership of it and had fixed it up itself. Yeah. But from the outside, it appeared to be a slum. But the the chaos and the you know mess, there was there was joy in community. Yeah. I think slum clearance did more for the death of cities than the Luftwaffe did, as far as I'm concerned. Wow. Um, and, and we're still doing it. We're still living in this sort of social utopian vision about how we want people to live and behave. And we don't have that perfect person anymore. The, the person is, or the family is not this perfect family that we all imagined it to be. Yeah. So it's, uh, it, it's very difficult um, to imagine how we might change that. And, and that's what, we, it's what we, we're talking about all the time, is how do you see something through the other side of the lens? that attracts people to this nirvana without telling them what this nirvana is. And that's the challenge in, in what we do every day. Yeah. So if we could talk a bit about what, 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 you, what you do every day. So I remember about, I don't know, seven or eight years ago, maybe, we were in London having a pint. Um, in fact, you were um, about to chair the launch of my book at, uh, in the House of St. Barnabas. What a Soho. night. What a night that was. Um, and you were saying, oh, how pissed off you were with the systems. And you, you had been saying to me for a while, what people need, people being lonely, excluded, homeless people, however you want to label them, we keep wanting to give them services. And what they need is love and friendship. And I remember thinking, what, I, what is he talking about? How do you make that into a thing? And then you went off and did it. So what are you doing these days and then we'll work back from yeah. there to how you got there i mean can i just say that night was great because i got to interview liam and muhammad yunus you know the, oh, right, uh, yeah, the small the, guy yeah micro, yeah. micro learns yeah. micro credit nobel prize winner and when he says interview liam and muhammad yunus he means 
interview Muhammad Yunus. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. no, no, no was, I, I got in the way. I, I, I felt I was in the way. I actually it. kept turning to Yunus and saying, no, no, it's not your evening tonight. It's Liam's book launch, yeah. not yours. Yeah. And uh, which, uh, Did you eat was, his trifle or something? Yeah, I ate his tw- uh, uh, treacle sponge and custard. Yeah. He, I nicked it when he wasn't looking. Yeah, he still talks about that. Does he? Damn. Who's that chat? mad jazz man who nicks my pudding? <laughs> Nobel Peace Prize winner's <laughs> treacle sponge. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, well, I think the phrase I probably used was, was actually... Uh, what people need is friends and purpose. Yeah. And uh, those two things really is everything else is for the birds. And, and I, I only feel this because I just spent 20 years working with people um, uh, who weren't doing very well in life and having a shit time really, you know, toes over the edge of the cliff of life, as it were. And when you, you spend a lot of time with those people, you have uh, conversations about what really matters. And you did this running big organizations for homeless people, uh, you were chief executive of housing association. You ran Tony Blair's single homeless. You spent millions and millions. I mean, you were at the you were you were at the heart of it. Well, I had that classic. I was as bad as the system. I had that classic mistaken belief that the more important I got, um, the more change I could make. Yeah. Of course, the converse is true. But anyway, so I, I actually thought that if I, uh, you know, I, I had run um, supposedly the biggest homeless event in Europe, which is called the Crisis Open Christmas. Uh, and my big pub story is that I turned the Millennium Dome into a homeless shelter. And that got the attention of the government. And they gave me a job and I, I spent 180 million quid or whatever um, uh, turning um, hostels and day centres into these places of change, as we called them, instead of warehouses of, of containment. And, um, and then off the back of that got you know, uh, uh, ran the biggest homeless provider in the country, which is the Salvation Army, their homelessness. And so I just, you know, and then became a chief exec a few times, housing associations. I thought the more important I get, and of course, all I did actually was write board papers. That, that was my main thing. Yeah. Um, and and got into the word of strategy, which yeah. uh, which can take months, just, you know, mm. coming up with a, a plan. Uh, and that, you know, that is what we do in, in Britain. We, we spend nine months writing a business plan. Strategizing, yeah. For a feasibility study that lasts three years and then decide not to do it. So, you know, we're, we're planning is, 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 is the enemy of that, really. So anyway, so yeah, so I, I kind of spent a lot of time doing that. And, uh, but all the time realizing that what we were doing wasn't actually the thing that made the change. I just, it was 20 years of failure, really, because, you know, I've got a lot of people rehoused. Thousands, I must have, over the years, got them into houses. I've got thousands um, shelf stacking jobs in ASDA and NVQ training courses and, and all of that. And, you know, I'm sure these things are really important, you know, sorting your benefits out. You know, money and housing, they're important. But, you know, if all of life was just money and housing, I mean, I don't know, is that enough for you? Uh, is that, does that give life meaning? I mean, is it, is it really worth sticking around for? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, for me, what the conversations with these people at the edge of the cliff, they were never about housing. They were never about money. Yeah. They were about who mattered to them in their life and what got them up in the morning, a sense yeah. of purpose. And, um, you know, it was... <laughs> It was never a meeting over a needs and risk assessment that got people excited, funnily enough, in my hostels. It was the football competition I rang. Yeah. You know, that's what got all the lads really excited. You know, um, you know, or, you know, believe it or not, poetry is massive amongst yeah. people yeah. At, at the sharp end. You know, they yeah. write poetry. Why do they do that? Honestly, there's an yeah. extraordinary industry of homelessness poetry. Um, I met a guy who'd been on heroin for 18 years, couldn't read or write. The Jesus Army taught him how to read and write in his doorway. And then when he wouldn't go to their farm and be a Christian, they abandoned him. And he taught himself to read and write from shop signs and street signs. And he came into my homeless shelter and uh, with a bit of encouragement, he wrote a poem about his life. 
and it went up on the wall. And everyone was so amazed by it. By the end of Christmas, he had wallpapered the wall with his poems. And he never looked back from that moment. He was suddenly like, oh my God, I have a voice, I have purpose, I'm a poet. And he went on to become the unofficial poet laureate of London. And I stood on the steps of the British Museum when the Secretary of State for Education gave him a diploma. And Mm. um, he was having a fag because he sneaked sneaked out during the ceremony because that was just exactly like Jamie. He was about to get the certificate and he buggered off a fag outside. (laughs) We stood on the steps and I went to say, come on, get back in. And he said, no, I'm just taking a moment here. He said, because that was my spot. And the gates of the British Museum was where he slept and begged for years. And he said, look at me now, eh? And it wasn't a housing officer that did that. It wasn't sorting his benefits out that did that. It was making him realise that he was a poet. Yeah. Giving him this purpose. You know, so I think friends and purpose were the two things. And I just, you know, listen, to be honest, it's honestly not that complicated. I just realised what I was doing with housing and benefits didn't work. But when we looked at friends and purpose, it did. So I just thought, well, let's do that then. It was just, unfortunately, no one else did. <laughs> and they always thought I was an idiot. So, and that has evolved into Camarado. So tell yeah. us a bit about that. Well, I sat at my desk and thought, wait, I need to do this thing on friends and purpose then. And, um, uh, but how do you get people friends and purpose? You can't point at someone and say, get friends. I'm going to be your friend. <laughs> exactly. So uh, we made a mess of it in the early days. And I've got some hilarious stories about trying to create programs that got people friends and purpose. I did this one thing where we'd work with small groups of people with who are you know, really in trouble and they'd start their own business in four weeks. So you'd love this, Liam, Mr. Captain Social Enterprise over there. Um, so, uh, Colonel. Eh? Colonel. Colonel Social yeah. Enterprise, yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I, we'd get them starting their own business in four weeks. So I had 10 crack addicts in Blackpool and we had to come up with a business idea in four weeks. And uh, we ended up deciding to dress as Christmas elves and stand outside Debenhams and wrap people's presents for Christmas. It was a brilliant idea. Unfortunately, on day one, we realized there was an essential um, problem with the business idea, which is none of us could wrap presents. <laughs> um, so that, so we, we came up with our, our slogan for our business was put a fucking bow on it. Um, <laughs> that, that, that was our tagline. And... Um, so that was that was kind of uh, yeah. I mean uh, so many lessons from that, that um, and then there were other businesses. You well, know. you walked up to people in the street, went dresses and over, go, oi, put a fucking bow on it. <laughs> I wonder why that didn't work, Matt. I wonder why, uh, but that, I mean these crack addicts loved it because people were handing over their like uh, Gucci um, clothes and their you know Prado and everything and saying, there you go, I'll be back in an hour. <laughs> and these crack addicts were like, well, hey, uh, but 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 it worked and they bloody loved it. You know, I remember giving my wallet to one guy. And you see, this is what an organized, efficient, neat system would never do. I gave my wallet to my guy and it had 50 quid and all my cards in it. And I said to him, listen, uh, go and get some more wrapping paper. We're running out. And he just held it in my hand for a second too long and looked at me. And then he went off and he came back with the wrapping paper. And then at the end of the day, I said, what was that about? And he said, he said, no one no, trust no me. No one ever trust you. No one would trust me with that. He said, you're mad. Why did you do that? You know what I do. You know, I, you know. <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, but if you nicked it, it would have would have cost me 50 quid I'd cancel my yeah. cards yeah. it's not a you know but in return I got this epiphany that someone trusted him now I want you to compare the epiphany that the world might trust him and he might be worth something with 50 quid yeah it's cheap Doesn't, there's no yeah but the system would never ever do that because it it legislates against any form of risk like that there'd be forms to fill in committees to sign the money off we got into so much trouble in those early days because we give people a lift and we weren't 
you know, you're not allowed to get in the car with someone on your own. There has to be at least two members of staff in the car at any time. Yeah. And this is what the system does. It constantly breaks down any chance of building trust or relationship with anyone. And um, I remember just to stay with the elves for a second. Yeah. We're um, loving the elves. We said to them, listen, you do it yourselves this weekend. And Jenny, my, my, uh, who I ran camaraders with, was like, you can't be serious. I said, well, we've got, we got to trust them. So we said, you set up the stall, you run it, you take the money, we'll see you Monday. Of course, we were petrified. And uh, we came in on Monday, and all the substance misuse workers, classic uh, jargon from the sector there, drugs yeah. workers who worked with them, they were in the same sort of centre that these guys would go to, and uh, they were all laughing at us on Monday morning. And they said, see, we told you, they can't be trusted. Literally, first words yeah, yeah. from the drugs worker. He said, why? He said, well, there was 30 pounds missing from the till. You see, you can't trust them. And I said, oh, right, okay. Just out of interest, how much money is in the till in total? 430 pounds. I said, have you met a crack addict? Who leave three, 430 pounds. Yeah. They'd yeah. sell the tin. Yeah. And take all my, 30 quid. We're talking success here. And the, and the 30 quid had been because they bought them all themselves lunch. Yeah. And uh, but they were so ready not to be not to trust them yeah. and ready to be uh, right about them, you know. And that that's we've come a, across that time and time again with Camarados all the time. But we realised that the business thing didn't work because it was too dependent on us. Actually, it was wasn't sustainable. Um, and that's why we then went toward, towards this other idea I'd had, uh, which um, the prototype was called "What If Samaritans Ran Starbucks." So it was like the idea was what if you there was a place in your high street where you could go and instead of a five quid coffee and a blueberry muffin, you actually, you know, you sat down and people kind of gave a shit. Yeah. So um, we uh, we took over this empty space and um, that's in, in Sheffield and uh, gave it a go. And it's now spiraled and we've now got 200 public living rooms in five countries. So, just, so, so tell us what camaradas is. What does that word mean? And then just spell out how these public living rooms work for people that might not be familiar with your work yeah in brief um i mean camarado actually came from a, a poem uh walt whitman my favorite poet and he wrote a, a poem called song for the open road and he said on the open road of life more important than money more important than food is is to have a camarado beside you so camarado give me your hand let us away and it, it was literally just a word that i used to uh, call people in emails and um uh, so that became the name of our community interest company. Actually, it all changed, if you'll indulge me. There's a great story where I overheard a guy in a public living room two years in, huge, tall, bald guy who looked like the butler in the Adams family, very scary yeah. guy, in and out of prison all his life. He was called Wayne. And he said to someone, uh, listen, fellow, I'm not your friend, but I'm your camarado, okay? I've got your back. And we were like, what the hell does he mean? So we bought him a cup of tea. And he was, he was using camarado as a noun now, not a proper noun, you know? Yeah. And, and straight away, he said, well, it's halfway between a stranger and a friend, isn't it? Brilliant. And I said, well, why can't it be a friend, Wayne? You know, a friend's a good thing. And he went, well, is it though? He said, you, he said your friends have got to fix you. They've got to sort you out, you know, or you've got to sort your friends out. There's a real obligation there. It's like, I just need someone alongside me for 10 minutes. I've got your back. You've got mine. We're good. And that was it. He changed our life. Uh, I, well, that was enough, wasn't it? That, that was, was enough. It. So uh, we had to change our name at Company's House, cost me a fortune. We're, so my little team are now the Association of Camarados, and you are all Camarados, small c. And it's this idea of just someone who's got your back. I don't have to fix you. I don't have to find an outcome. And that's kind of really, we've got these six principles. And when you talk about massive small, I do want to talk about this, actually, because 
It's a very small idea at the public living room. It's just a place you can go and get a bit of company when times are tough. This is literally, you turn up in city centres, you put sofas on the uh, sidewalk, you have, a cup, you have a kettle, you have some biscuits, and you sit there, and then people who want to come and sit, have tea, speak to you, come and do that. Is it, is well, that's when I do it. I mean, that's the sort of activism my team do to kind of, uh, yeah. But, I mean, actually we send resources out to people in their own communities and they do it without us. That's why there's 205 countries. I can't be turning up to yeah. uh, Los Angeles with uh, um, sofas, so the people in, in LA do that. And and we send them a box and, uh, yeah, they create a place. Now, some people do it in hospitals, some people do it in student unions, some people do it in parks, some people do it in community centres, in cafes, in shops. Really, honestly, there's no rules about that. I was in Hastings um, recently with a mutual friend of ours, the wonderful Bob Toost. Yep. Um, and uh, there was a public living room there in an empty shop between a cheese shop and a... The best thing about offices. that was it was an old furniture shop and the furniture dealership left and said, uh, you can have all my sofas. <laughs> so they had. So they, result, they just moved straight in. Uh, that's a brilliant one. That's a big one, yeah, in Hastings. Yeah, so it can... And the local people run it themselves. Whoever walks in runs it. Um, so it's just a small idea, a place, a place to go in your neighbourhood. That's not church. It's not an, uh, uh, you know, the police. It's not yeah. council. There's no agenda. You don't have to uh, be a specific race, gender. You don't have to have a particular health condition. You're, it's a place for humans, right? Imagine Alcoholics Anonymous, but it's not about booze. It's about humanity, right? So it's a place to go to be human with each other. But we discovered that this small idea that we just want to see everywhere, we, we discovered that it didn't work. <laughs> Yeah. So we had to come up with things over the last eight years, and they're mostly these six principles, which just help people be more human. And we just kind of drip feed them into the space. And the reason I mention them is back to that thing about uh, what Wayne said halfway between a, a stranger and a friend is because one of the biggest ones is don't fix me. Yeah, He said, there's no obligation to fix me. I don't need a solution here. I literally just need your company. Yeah, Connection is enough. And that is the tiny idea just want to see in every neighborhood connection is enough yeah. what are the other five principles man just very quickly um uh yeah so um mix with people who are not like you so getting people uh, who are who are very different to to share the space we noticed that that created a really great atmosphere people self-select we all self-select much more than we think yeah. you know there were cafe nero people and there were kfc people right so you've got to work hard at mixing people married to that is it's okay to disagree respectfully I don't know what happened to the state of uh, modern uh, public discourse, but apparently if I disagree from you, I don't, I don't, I don't like you anymore. So we, we try and create a space where that's not the case. But it's also a case where I say, listen, man, I don't like how you're behaving. Come back tomorrow. That is okay. Um, and then no, no fixing. Married to no fixing is it's okay to be a bit rubbish sometimes. Our most popular bit of merchandise is a badge which says, I'm a bit shit sometimes. Yeah. And that is, that's a really big one for us. Uh, it's a place to go and be a bit shit and stay shit. That's yeah. fine. It's a human right to be shit. Yeah. Um, you ain't forgotten about that one. Uh, I live that one. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, um, the last two are have fun, be silly. I mean, we really believe this is a great way to break down a lot of the problems of organized systems is they can't handle silliness. Yeah. So I believe uh, every meeting can go much better with a comedy mustache. Um, uh, so, you know, try and be silly. And then the, the, the final one is the one that is counterintuitive to most people, but has never, ever, ever let me down, which is if you see someone really, really struggling and you don't know what to say, um, ask them to do you a favor. Don't help them. Yeah. 
say to them the six most powerful words in the English language, can you do me a favor? Yeah. And that transforms the whole dynamic. And within five minutes, they're telling you to calm down. And but in a funny way, almost everything you're talking about is counterintuitive. Yeah. In, in the sense that we wouldn't approach it from that particular way if we were like looking to start a community movement of some sort. So this idea, so it applies to a much broader base than just people who've got difficulties. Oh, yeah, and it's, no. And it's the single biggest thing yes. that we suffer from. And I'm absolutely convinced that we have shit politics nationally because we don't have good politics locally. And we've actually killed that democracy at the local level. You know, for us, it's what does the parish council think, you know, rather than what are we as a group of people living in our village or our town or our neighborhood? It was our straight thing. I was so excited when the pandemic happened. Sorry, that's probably brilliant. not a good thing to say. Yeah. But because people suddenly started uh, working well, the, with the community, the community genie was let out the bottle. Yeah. That's exactly what happened. You've got to put it back again. Yeah, people are baking cakes for one another. You know. Yeah. Was, and more, getting prescriptions for each other. Yeah, just it was it was amazing, the, 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 the atmosphere. I mean, what happened in our village was more people on the street. The fact that more fathers were at home with their kids. I think kids must look back on the pandemic and think probably that was the best time of our lives, you know, to see our been, dad. It wasn't I think spending there's been evidence done, hasn't there, which is actually yeah. uh, happiness levels, happiness went up levels. In, at least for the first three to six months. Mm, I think yeah. then it tailed down, but, yeah. but I think to begin with, yeah. But that's the thing you can't measure. That's the, coming back to yeah. your the homelessness approach, the typical government-led homelessness approach, is that the metrics weren't there to measure happiness or, or sense of belonging, sense of community, um, and, and I suppose that's what you grappled with in your, your time when you were dealing with formal systems. Yeah, um, attitudes to risk and attitudes to impact measuring, absolutely, yes. I mean, can I just say, I, I sort of, um, uh, I'm both an idealist uh, and a pragmatist on this particular issue. Yeah. Okay? So the pragmatist says, okay, I understand, you've got to measure something because you're going to fund my team or something like that right so so on that i have an approach which i call front of house back of house which is front of house you know what man it's sofas and armchairs and custard creams that's all people see that's all people feel you're not putting health and well-being questionnaires in my public living room, right yeah not making people feel like they're in a service okay yeah, yeah. because apart from anything else whatever data you get is completely contaminated by the fact they're re- they're reading a bloody questionnaire i mean who feels good doing and it's that, right? it's it's also contaminated by the way it was structured in the first place in other yeah. words someone wanted the answer yeah, you know, it's completely flawed. So, so it's completely so, flawed. The system's yeah. completely so, flawed. So sense. front of house is chatting, conversation, and stories, right? Yeah. Back of house, uh, much like when you go into the back of house in a restaurant, uh, all the lovely f- uh, furnishings and fittings disappear, and it's all white surfaces, kosh guidelines, different colored chopping boards, right? Now we have to... D- yeah, okay, so back of house, I'm taking the stories that we hear, I'm giving them a thematic analysis. I'm calling them qualitative data. Yeah. I am finding out what happens. You know, that's fine. And I'll give that to the funder. But, um, you know, front of house, keep keep it human, right? However, my idealist chimes in. And he's the one who always gets me into trouble in meetings because I am like, really? Do I honestly have to tell you why relationships and connection matter? What? No. Are we there? I'm pretty sure we've developed as a human race and a species to, to, to kind of know that that's important. You know, the Beatles said all you need is love. We, yeah. We've nailed that one. Yeah. But no, apparently we have to analyze it. You know, we really don't. You know, yeah. having yeah. other people is important. Done. Right. How do we do it? Yeah. And actually, when we worked in hospitals, we had 130,000 people using public living rooms in six NHS hospitals over three months. They poured in. And the nurses and the doctors and the surgeons and everyone said, um, 
I think we just got to do this because this is just the right thing to do, not because something else tells us. They just like this is obvious. People need this and they want it, and we're not giving it to them. Yeah, and they they saw that. And incidentally, over fifty percent of people uh, who used them in hospitals were not patients, were not relatives. They were staff, yeah. uh, stressed out, usually emergency staff or, or cancer staff. Yeah. And they just needed somewhere to go, take off their lanyard and be human yeah. and not be a doctor, not be a label, you know. Yeah. So so the, the, the small idea is just a place for no agenda company. Um, the, the big idea is I want to change the human race with it. Yeah. I mean, I want behavior to change. I want systems to realize they're damaging and corrosive with their power dynamics and their, their bullshit outcomes. I, I want them to realize it's not human anymore. It needs to be human. And what resistance do you get from government to that sort of approach? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, these days I'm a coward. I try not to work with them. Oh, yeah. Stay I mean, away. I, I just, you know, I, yeah, I mean, look, my heroes are the people still battling it out in the system. God bless them. I mean, I just, I was done with that. I was completely yeah. burnt out after 20 years. And I, I see myself outside the city walls in the streets just getting on and doing it. Um, and hopefully someone in the city will look over look the wall, over the wall and, go, and have a look and say, oh, well, yeah. maybe that's a good idea. Maybe we could do that. But, you know, I've, I've stood, I remember I stood at some um, bloody think tank, health think tank in Houston, loads of money, uh, looking out over um, extremely smart young Oxbridge graduates who were all uh, very yeah. pleased with the job there. And they were, I was the entertainment over lunchtime. And uh, at the end, um, some young chap who really was far too young to have a beard uh, put his hand <laughs> up and, and, and he said, um, he said, Maff, I don't think you're mining your data enough. And I said, oh, wow, um, Gosh, that sounds like something cool. Should I do that then? And and he said, yeah, yeah. I said, why should I do that? And he said, well, you'd get the attention of some some pretty important, influential people. I said, oh, why? And then what? And he said, well, you know, that could really open the doorways to some really interesting, uh, some funding opportunities. And I said, and then what? And he said, well, then, you know, something like NHS England or the government could scale you around the country. I said, oh, thanks. Yeah, we don't want that. And this sort of expression went over him like, why don't you want that? That's the Holy Grail. That's what you want. I said, no, no, because they'll, they'll, they'll mess it up. You know, they'll, they'll, they, it won't work. Because it doesn't actually work if they do that. Because if you scale something, you systemize it and you dehumanize it and you over-organize it. And there's no place for people to be a bit crap and a bit yeah. human. Yeah. Uh, the book I wrote uh, to, with, with, with other people in the movement, um, and in the end I was banned from meetings, uh, about the book because I had too much to say. And they're like, Maff, just get out. You know, So they banned me from the meetings. So the seventh principle. Seventh principle is get him out the room. Um, so I said, okay, 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 fine. Uh, you want to make it simple, I get it. Okay, but just keep this one little bit in. And the one bit I wanted them to keep in was when you're doing a public living or when you're doing this, just do it, just be a bit shit. Just be a bit crap about yeah, yeah. it. Because if you're a purist, you'll end up like the Catholic you'll Church. You'll kill the life out of it. Yeah, life, and, yeah, and you'll end up like the Catholic Church and Liam knows all about that. Um, Bless me, Father. Indeed. And, you know, we know where that ends, right? You cannot be too much of a purist. You know, everyone has been to a community event where somebody shouts at you to get out of the kitchen, right? We all turn into little Hitlers, right? Yeah. We all know how to, more about the rules than someone else. Be a bit crap gives permission for other people to be more loose and light and crap and human. Keep it loose, keep it light. And um, that is so, so important. So if the government did it or if it was scaled, they couldn't handle that. No. Um, and they'd bring in safeguarding policies. And as we all know, safeguarding is the new fire. If you shout safeguarding in a room, everyone's IQ plummets um, <laughs> and stupid ideas come yeah. out and we increase risk exponentially. Yeah. 
Whereas what we do is we we talk to people, we listen to people, and guess what? Risk reduces by the second. Um, and do you yet, think that people yeah. hide? Because what you do is quite scary. I mean, you've talked to me about some of the people that come and sit on your sofas are, you know, interesting people, aren't they? Potentially violent. You're, you're take, you are taking some risks there. Do you think that people in the system, the foundations, the social services, um, get that at some level and therefore hide inside the, we need a safeguarding policy, there can only be two people in the car? Straight up, Liam, honestly, I'm going to say this. I mean, the communities who start public living rooms, which is where the bulk of the action happens, more often than not, they're like-minded people and they, yeah. they reach out to other people in the community and, and it looks like a, a, a church fate. I mean, there's fairy lights, for God's sake, and, and um, cushions and sofas mm. and custard creams. It doesn't encourage violent behaviour. But yes, I'm, I'm not, I'm not no, saying for a second that it does. No, no, no. But when I go out in the street and I turn up to a neighbourhood and illegally put furniture on the pavement, yes, you don't know what you're going to find, absolutely. But you know who the scariest people I, I meet? It's, it's the guys in stab vests who work yeah. for the security firm for the shopping mall who have come to move me on. When the guys, and it happened to me in Cardiff uh, two weeks ago, a guy turned up toothless, half his ear was bitten off, he was naked except for some grey shopping bottoms. Uh, <laughs> what are shopping bottoms? Shopping bottoms. <laughs> um, gray, That's another podcast altogether. Grey tracksuit bottoms, and he had a, the obligatory Tesco bag full of booze. And he said himself, he said, oh, I'm the nightmare guy in the city centre in Cardiff. Right? And he sat down, and he bloody loved it. And he was chatting and laughing to everybody who came up, and he had the best stories, and he was lovely, and he was incredibly reflective about what a nightmare he was, and God bless the police for being so patient with me the other night, otherwise it could have really kicked off. And yeah. uh, I actually, and, and I'm not trying to romanticise this, because, yeah, he has a very tough life, and he's a very aggressive man who's made some incredibly bad choices, but there's something about come and sit down and shoot the shit and I'm not here to fix you, Ev the temperature goes down, mm -hmm. everything reduces. This is what I'm saying. Yes, I did go to Toxus and get spat at all day and shouted at, but that was the local residents <laughs> <laughs> who decided that this was their piece of land and how dare I. And, you know, that's fine. I just said, yeah, no worries, I'll leave. You know, no biggie. Um, but, I, you know, I, I generally find that if someone's behavior isn't great, there, there's, the system has two ways of dealing with that. Either um, charities patronise them and stroke them and say, oh, you don't understand how it is to behave well. Of course, you keep throwing those chairs, it's fine. Well, that's bullshit because you're infantilising that person yeah, yeah. and it's not fine to throw chairs. Or the system does another thing, which is get out. And all that does is create an enemy who comes back, as I have found, later that night and throws a fire extinguisher through the window of your homeless project yeah. because you've created an enemy. Yeah. So what you do is the third way, which is here's a cup of tea, Here's a digestive biscuit. Right, let me tell you why you've been a bit of a prick and why you're going to come back tomorrow. And you talk eye to eye, grown up to grown up. Now, even if they do kick off a bit with you when you're saying you're not staying, but here's, let me tell you why over a cup of tea. Ten times out of ten, they come back the next day. Yep. They don't want to talk to anyone else. They want to talk to you, yeah. shake you by the hand, and say, sorry, I was a bit of a prick yesterday. What can I do to help today? Yeah. Yet that has never not happened to me in, tw in 30 years. And the reason is, overnight, as they've chewed it, they've realised there was one person who treated them with respect yeah. as a grown-up. It's respect is that single word all the time. I mean, it comes up time and again, and I think we've lost sight of it. Mm -hmm. uh, there's an interesting story I heard. Um, in fact, we, I've got um, Nicola Hartley, who, who was uh, involved with the ASBO unit. Um, on, she's going to come on as one of our, yeah, uh, great. One of our guests. So um, there was a story of uh, 
a bunch of kids kicking a wall, kicking their ball up against a wall of an old lady's house. And uh, persistently did it. And she used to come out with tea and biscuits or orange juice and biscuits. And the kids thought, what's this all about? Yeah. So the next day they kicked the ball up at tea and biscuits appeared. She didn't report them because they would have all got asbos. That's exactly what had happened. That's right. And all of a sudden, by the third time, they were friends. Yeah. So this idea, this counterintuitive thing of, of your first reaction is phone the police or phone whoever it is to solve this difficult problem. Well, we'll solve it ourselves. And I think that's the analogy of what you're talking about, is that counterintuitive approach that says you achieve outcomes that are far, far better than you would ever achieve through formal systems. And there's a couple of reasons for that. And one of them is just, uh, you know, positivity breeds positivity, right? Good energy breeds good energy. And, the yeah. f and, and you know, um, I'm, I'm in a, locked in an argument with my son's comprehensive school at the moment because they believe that uniform pol uh, policies and behavior policies and targets and... Um, Punishment is is the answer, and I'm trying to you know suggest they have an encouragement policy. I've yeah. asked them what their confidence policy is, yeah. because you can't do anything without the encouragement and confidence. Um, so there's that angle. The other angle is um, the woman with the tea and biscuits or the orange juice or whatever. Uh, they know her now. Yeah, it's respect. But but they also they know her yeah. right. Whereas you know there's this sort of um, it's the windscreen analogy I use That's right. It. So when someone cuts you up in traffic. You yeah. go from zero to volcanic. Yeah. You don't know them, and there's a nice windscreen in between you, so I don't have to yeah. be human. But if I'm talking to you now, you would not scream, because I'm here now, and I'm called Maff, and I'm looking in your eye, and I've yeah. got a quasi-northern accent and I like jazz, and you know a little bit about me. So you know what? When I say, hey, listen, could you not kick the ball up against them? They're like, yeah, sure, no, of course. So if you get to know someone, if you, um, I mean, you know, ironically, I kid you not, this is a true story. I met my hero just a couple of years before the pandemic, right? It was a guy called Sergio Popovich. Sorry, Liam, you are my hero too. Um, second my second hero. Turn after, mic back on. After Liam. <laughs> <laughs> we can edit the start. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I've got a few heroes. <laughs> yeah. um, so Sergio Popovich is this amazing activist from Serbia and he's a leader in the nonviolent protest world. And, and he's absolutely an amazing guy. And you should read his book, Blueprint for Evolution. It really changed my life. And for evolution. Bl uh, revolution. Revolution. Blueprint for, for, for evolution. evolution. It's yeah. amazing, yeah. yeah. It's very funny as well. And it's basically, you know, <coughs> uh, releasing um, ping pong balls into the streets of Damascus and Aleppo with anti-Assad slogans on and making everyone piss themselves as they watch secret policemen run around after these ping pong balls. You know, it's kind of eroding fear in totalitarian yeah, yeah. regimes through humour and yeah. music. It's wonderful. So I met him and he literally really wrote... Really is the one thing... Those systems do not know how to deal with. That's why our principle about be silly is so important because they can't handle it. You, you know, that formal organized structure can't handle humor mm. and, and therefore it breaks down and humanity emerges. Honestly, I, I, I can't tell you how important that is. If you're having a meeting, if you're listening to this and you're having a meeting today, introduce yourself with your name and then follow it with your, the, your favorite biscuit. Yeah. Everyone in the meeting will follow suit and you'll have a really good meeting. Okay. Your it's, favorite biscuit is? Well, it's a custard cream, obviously. Okay. Calvin? What's the one with the raisins in it? Oh, uh, Garibaldi thing. Garibaldi's, Garibaldi's, Garibaldi's. I love those Garibaldi's. Liam? Jaffa cakes. <sighs> There's no debate about that. That is the, the king. Isaac, I mean, our uh, producer? Digestives. That's the, no, that's the number one biscuit in the country here. Yeah. Um, that's so you, Liam, that you would answer the biscuit question with a cake. I mean, is, that it, is, a cake? Just, is it a cake? Is it a biscuit? Yes, yes. Cakes go soft, biscuits go hard, and they go stale. And, okay. and also for tax I've purposes. Something. And also, it's called a fucking Jaffa cake. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I Sorry. see what you're saying there. 
Anyway, that's, um, that's why you got it. This is got. This is certainly got. This is great. Get out now, man. No, I'm telling. I'm telling you that uh, every speech I do, I ask people what their favorite biscuit is, and, and instantly the room becomes animated. Yeah. And this is this is how to connect, right? Yeah. How do you we got, friends you, and influence people? Yeah. You yeah. got to connect. Um, so you've yeah. talked. You've talked about the, the obsession we have with scale, innovation. This is another one of those uh, things. So, Math, you want some money from me? Tell us about your innovation strategy. God, where, where are you on innovation? <laughs> Where do you want me to start, man? Honestly, I'm losing count of the number of innovation awards I've turned down and upset people with. And uh, a, a guy who I think might be a friend of yours, Liam, phoned me up and said, we want to make a film about you to show at the Grosvenor House Hotel for the World Bank of Scotland Social Enterprise Awards or something. It's like, this is a big deal. We're so excited. Oh, why do you want to make a film about me? Oh, because you're so innovative. I said, oh, gosh, I'm really sorry. Um, I think you've been misinformed. We're not. <laughs> And he said, oh, no, 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 you're really radical. I said, what's radical about us? Yeah. I said, uh, if human connection is innovative and radical, I think we're all screwed, aren't we? Yeah. And, and, he's, uh, and he said, oh, but, you know, I mean, you know, th this awards night, I said, I don't think we should get an award either because, like, actually, we're not very good. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, we make a lot of mistakes. I don't think you can handle that. That's by the by. Um, I just find the innovation, this kind of obsession, like... Um, and, and, and I think a lot of it is to do with ego yeah. and boredom and people's need to be validated. Yeah. You know what? The T-shirt I want to make, but my, my team won't let me because it's a bit aggressive, but I want, I want a T-shirt that says, it's not about you. Yeah. Maybe on the back it'll say it's about us. But, you know, we, it really, I think innovation is, is, is about, you know, our need to, I don't know, win an award and have a, mm. you know, a nice evening at the, the Grosvenor House Hotel. I mean, the, but the point is, this thing we're doing works. I just want it everywhere. There you go. But in many ways, you re rediscover it, those vital connections that built society originally. I mean, that's, yeah. that's the point that I keep on making is we've actually put in place blockers to developing society. Yeah. And quite often it's our formal systems that have done that. There's nothing more suppressive than a formal system in killing community. Um, we were talking about health and safety a bit earlier. And in my, my interview, I said the two most dangerous words in the English language are health and safety because they can kill so much. Yeah. Uh, we, had a, we had a project that had to do with reducing traffic in Dublin. It's a project I was working on. And the biggest problem was the peak at school, school traffic in the mornings and, a, and some you know, mummies driving their kids to school and picking up in the afternoon. So we introduced a thing called the train, which was one mother would pick up one kid and pick up another kid and they'd walk. They'd walk to school. Until one day someone said, have you got insurance? And of course... The mommy said, we haven't. And it killed it. It absolutely killed the project. Yeah. And all it needed was the local authority were keen on it to put in place an insurance scheme that said, you know, if this happens, it's we, we, we covered in some way. Yeah. So quite often it's those things that, that take that those vital beginnings, that sort of the kernel of, mm. of, um, of society and suppress it at that lowest level. And you most small yeah. change projects yes. get killed by top-down systems quite quickly. You can't tell me that people would drive internal combustion engines full of round roads at great speeds if how many cars yeah. in, invented in the in the years of in the age of health and yeah. safety and risk assessments yeah. um i mean you know when i used to fill massive buildings in london full of homeless people and um over christmas and run the whole place solely on volunteers members of completely untrained members of the public who yeah. who would uh, you know run the place 
Um, I mean, it was completely ridiculous. And I remember the chairman of Crisis was the guy who used to run the Financial Times, and he said to me once, he said, Matt, there's no point you doing a risk assessment for this because no one would ever sign off. No. The most vulnerable yeah. looked after the least trained in makeshift buildings over Christmas. You know, it's ridiculous. And uh, I was so pleased, but he said that was because he, he, he had that insight because he was the guy who um, got funding for the Wobbly Bridge, the Millennium Bridge. Yeah, right. And he said, we spent 150 grand on the risk assessment. 150 grand. At no point did that risk assessment mention the bridge might wobble. Wobble, yeah. He said, so that it's bullshit, you know. Um, yeah, and I mean, the, the, the other thing about the, the innovation thing is I keep getting asked, uh, wow, Maf, so this, you know, Camarados thing is great, you know, 205 countries. What's next? Yeah. And it, they're so disappointed, oh. you know. Expunges question. <laughs> yeah, I knew you were going to ask it as well. Well, it's because um, they, they get very disappointed because I say another public living room in another neighbourhood, you know, and they're like, no, but what's, you know, what's next for you? And I think, you know, I was saying this to you earlier that, you know, round about now, eight years into our journey, I'm supposed to be getting a TED talk, yeah. probably a book deal. Um, I'll, I'll start going to some pretty nice... Um, meetings maybe in Whitehall or I might yeah. go over to Davos. Um, I'll get quite into myself. I'll probably yeah. develop a personal brand. Um, I'll have my own side hustle with a website and um, and then I'll go off and invent something else. I'll get a huge amount of investment um, and it'll fail. And then, but that doesn't matter because there's plenty of other people to back me and I'll go and, you know, and it's like, why do I want to do that? Yeah. I just, I've got this great idea, which works. I just need more people to have it. It's not about me. Yeah. Uh, the biggest learning I've had in eight years um, is quite often I'm the problem. I've got to get out the room. Uh, mm. You know, I take up too much oxygen, as you can tell. I talk too much, right? Mm. So when I'm around, people behave slightly differently uh, because I came up with the idea for camaraderies. That is a negative. It's a big negative. Yeah. So I need to not turn up. Mm. But the problem with a lot of founders and a lot of innovators is they always turn up, right? Because it's all about them. Mm. So my biggest problem is that I'm a founder. I'm a white, uh, middle-aged man. Uh, we don't need any more platforms for them. Um, and, you know, so I've got to get myself out of the way as much as possible. And yet, at the same time, I've got stuff to offer because I've learned a lot. Yeah. So that and my it gives biggest, you yeah. personally purpose and, and meaning. Well, that's why I hit the pavements. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, I do it under a shroud of... It's it's activism. It's about the movement, but basically, it's what I want to do with my yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I there is no better feeling than jumping behind the wheel of a van and getting in trouble uh, for the day and thinking, you know, am I going? Anyone to listening to this must follow Math on Twitter. And, uh, <laughs> you want health and safety <laughs> being violated left, right, and centre? Follow Math on Twitter. But tell me, is there a bigger joy than you turn up to a neighbourhood, you don't know what's going to happen, you put the furniture out on the pavement, uh, you could get moved on, which more often than not leads to a great conversation with someone. And almost every time the policeman gets the other end of the sofa and helps you move it somewhere else. Um, and then you get this immense privilege where people sit down and you have a novel sit yeah. down opposite you, a fantastic novel, and you just hear about their lives. And it's inc I'm incredibly blessed. I heard three of the most amazing stories in Cardiff last Friday, which I will never, ever forget. What a privilege. Yeah, tell us one of them. Oh, it was a young lad. Uh, no, well, it was, it was actually a guy, maybe in his 50s on a mobility scooter, telling me about when he was a young lad. And um, I hope he doesn't mind me telling this story. But um, 
uh, I won't say his name for that purpose because I haven't asked him, but he was on a mobility scooter and he turned up with plums, which he'd bought from the market, and he just offered us all a plum. And it was lovely. And yes. so we started chatting to him. And he doesn't have anything to fill his day. His health is really bad. Uh, and he told us this story about when he was a young lad. He was at a service station in Yorkshire and he had a sign which said, anywhere but here. Yeah. He was hitchhiking. And obviously stuff had happened there and he, you know, he'd run away from his family, I think. And a long distance lorry driver walked past and saw his sign and said, have you eaten tonight, son? And he said, no. And he said, come on, I'll buy you dinner. So he bought him dinner. And then he said, so where do you want to go? And he said, well, anywhere but here. He said, well, I'm going to Cardiff, but then I'm heading for the south of France. So I'll take you as far as Cardiff, which is where um, I live. And he said, oh, okay. So they drove along, but he, he reached his maximum number of miles, so they had to stop. So he said, well, you, you sleep in the back, son. I'll just keep in the seat of the truck, you know. So he put the, the lad up for the night. Yeah. In the morning, bought him breakfast, took him to Cardiff, handed him his bag and said, good luck to you, son. And drove off. Brilliant. The guy was called John. The guy opened it, the young lad opened his bag, and inside was an envelope, and it said, I knew you wouldn't take this if uh, I gave it to you in person. And there was a grand in there, £1,000, right? Long distance lorry driver gave him a grand. And he said, here's my phone number. I'll be back in seven weeks. Give me a ring. We'll have a pint. Anyway, that £1,000, he got a flat. He got some uh, clothes, got his life back together. But he lost the phone number. And he looked and he looked and looked and he couldn't find the phone number. And he went to Helen back to find it. Anyway, since then, he got married. He had kids. He got his life back together. And then one day, he was, when one of the kids was a baby, he was making the baby's room and he was throwing stuff out. He found the bag again. And, it, as, and he gave it one last look. And there in the lining was the phone number. Yeah. It's about five years later. So he phones the number and this woman answers. And she says, oh, I wondered if you would ever call. And he says, oh, you know me. And she said, yes, I remember when John phoned from the service station that night and said, was it okay to give you a thousand pounds? Because we didn't really have it. And he said, oh, yeah, what's happened to you since? And he said, oh, I got my life back together. But, you know, it's been wonderful. And I owe it all to John. And he said, um, could you put John on the phone? I just want to tell him. And she said, uh, oh, love, I'm so sorry to tell you. He had a tail black stint a few years ago on the motorway and um, he's, he's not with us anymore. And um, Robert just, you know, crumpled. And uh, he stayed in touch with that woman and they've done lots of fundraisers together and they're now really great friends. Yeah. But um, that connection he had with John, which must kind of lasted more than 12 hours, yeah. changed his life. So the thing about small beginnings... It's just that small beginnings part. How do you start those small beginnings? That's the, that's the most interesting, interesting phenomenon, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I come back to the connection is enough. People don't think it is. They, there's a desperate urge for people to say about our public livings. Yes, but how many people get back to work? How yeah. many people get um, you know, MBQ? How many people, you know? And I say none, probably. Or maybe lots. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Don't care. But, you know, just, they'll get on and do it. But the first tiny step on the journey to any of those things you want them to get, well, we gave them that. We so for know. people listening to this math, who will be, have been amused by what you've said, have been touched by what you've said, maybe have been inspired by what you said, but are inside some of these institutions, state institutions, big charities, social enterprises, whatever it might be, what would your if you're in the market for giving advice to those people, be Get out! <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding, sorry. Um, uh, no, no, no. Um, it, the whole thing is about being more human. And, you know, it's really interesting you saying that, Liam, because I've started turning my mind to what makes us different. Um, I don't know if this would interest you, but a 
few nights ago, I was on a Zoom call for a launch of a network of spaces all around the country to give people a welcome. And it's churches and councils and it's government-backed and everything, and there's thousands of them. And I was sitting there going, oh, gosh, so our idea has been taken by someone else. Wow, I guess we're out of business. And I sat there, and all my human uh, ego fears hit me. And then I realized that none of it was like us. And the reason was it wasn't anything about the what. It was absolutely all about the how. Mm. All of it is how. Yeah. Right? We know what to do. It's how we do it that matters. So what I would say to those people in the system is, how do you turn up at work? And how do you speak to people, your colleagues? How do you speak to people and treat people and spend time with people and truly listen to people? Uh, you know, do you give people the permission to, to fail? You know, uh, do, you, do you spend time mixing with people who are completely different from you? you know? uh, do you handle disagreement well? All these principles that we find make things more human. Make your spaces more human. Your tiny little corner of the world, just make it a little bit more human. Um, we've all got stories, and God knows for 20 years in homelessness, all the great stories were because of a, a key worker relationship where someone had gone the extra mile. There's an expression, go above and beyond. Oh, they went above and beyond. Well, if there isn't, isn't a more damning indictment of the system than that, I don't know what it is. Yeah, that, limits, that limits someone. Well, they limits. evidently had to go above and beyond because the normal wasn't enough. It wasn't enough, yeah. It was limited, yeah. So I would be a above and beyond person. Who, and and what, what, does, what do you have to do to be above and beyond? You just have to be human. Just see the person. You know, um, a lot of these people inside the system are working in systems who want to run it like flat pack furniture. Right, they need housing. They need benefits. They need this. They need this. We're following a plan. Um, you know, as, as I often say... A and pathway. That's the... Yeah. You hear that all the time now, don't you? Well, on a pathway. Oh, yes, pathway. Yeah. yeah. I mean, don't get me started on the bloody jargon. The smaller something is, the more street level it is, the more local it is, the more chance it is to be intelligent and wise because it's reacting to the people that it's listening to. The more you get away from that and you scale and you try and organise it, you're ignoring the fact that this person is called Mabel and she lives on the street and she has these particular characteristics. You're never, ever going to find those characteristics at scale. Yeah. And I think the more local and close you are to people, um, and that, that goes for democracy, that, you know, that, that goes for planning decisions, that goes for everything, is how close are you? And, I, and, and that's the people are obsessed with growth, they're obsessed with scale. Um, you want a big magic wand that solves the words people. People I had a recent meeting with Starmer's people, Keir Starmer's people, and mm. they wanted. They said we want to come up with what Keir's big vision for communities is. And mm. I said, well, with the greatest respect, the last thing communities need is Keir. Big vision. He's Keir yeah. to have a big vision. Yeah. <laughs> Could Keir maybe just trust them and get out the way? Yeah. And that's what would be great. Is just you know there were some unbelievable people in communities doing amazing things, and guess what? They all get disillusioned and they give up. Why? Because the system doesn't get behind them. Yeah. So we need words like trust. <laughs> Yeah. Right, encouragement, confidence, yeah. listening, you know. But instead someone has to come along and just, you know, with their big vision, you know, drives me nuts. We need so some great ideas for our manifesto, Matt. What have you got? You're, you're, it does, it's not about you. I come back to that again. You don't have to solve this. There's plenty of people out there with great ideas. When the pandemic hit, every single one of our public living rooms closed overnight. That was the story I didn't get to the end of, sorry, but Serge Popovich wrote in my book, my copy of his book, Math, you've got the answer. The answer to everything is to reduce the social distance between people. That's it. Right? Yeah, we're out that of scale. We've lost scale. Okay. We've lost our scale with, with, with yeah. humans. You're but guess what? I'd never heard that expression, social distance, yeah. before because it was yeah. 2019. 
reduce the social distance. Along comes a global pandemic literally dedicated to increase the social distance between yeah. people. Yeah. So this is why we're in a lot of shit. We've got to get back to reducing that. Then you understand people. People have a different opinion. You're less polarized. You understand what is needed. It, it is, you know, the answer to our problems is each other. Math, thank you so much for being with us. Was that what did you think about that, Kelvin? I was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. There's a lot of food for thought there, and um, I'd love to continue the conversation with you sometime. Thank you very much, Math Potts.